I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. With words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know. It's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do most of the time is I talk about comics. But the actual mandate of my show is that I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But eh, I, I, I suppose the reality of the situation is I simply find comics to be sort of the bread and butter of my fandom and so as a result of that the overwhelming majority of what I have to say typically relates in some way or another directly back to comics it's just who I am so now quite a while ago at the time you guys are hearing this quite a while ago I went through a serious Batman kick right basically the fanboy muse took me in the direction of of Batman, and so what I did was watched a shitload of Batman movies, shitload of Batman the Animated uh, Series episodes, and a shitload of Batman comics. And for those of you who are a little bit confused by what exactly fanboy muse means, what it means is there are times when Basically, it's nothing for me but Legion of Superheroes, right? Or maybe it's nothing for me but Superman, or nothing but The Flash, or on and on and on and on and on, right? It can be any of a number of things. And so, when those things happen, I call it the fanboy muse. Now, the reality of the situation is that the fanboy muse, that's really just a fancy schmancy, kind of pretentious... Uh, way of disguising the fact that I've got the mother of all cases of ADD. Right, guys? I could never in a million years do an index show because of the fact that I I love a lot of different geek properties, and this much is true, but it's one of those things, it's really difficult for me to sustain that. You know, if you listen to stuff like, I guess as far as index shows are concerned, things like the two true freaks Star Wars Monthly Monday where they work their way through the entirety of Marvel Star Wars or 
from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast where they're working their way through the entire Burn Age uh, Superman. Guys, you need to understand, I could never in a million years do that, right? The reason for that is because, yeah, I can burn pretty bright with my fandom. I just can't burn all that long with it, you know? And then sooner or later, something else comes along and captures my attention and off we go, right? So rather than saying, though, that I've got kind of, uh, I guess, geekdom ADD, it somehow seems a little bit more flattering to say the fanboy muse is taking me here or it's taking me there. But it really, it, it, it's all bullshit. So anyway, there you have it. Now, in relation to that, the fanboy muse has taken me in the direction of Batman. And what I did, as I say, was I read a shit... Well, actually, I think at this point it's probably closer to two shitloads of Batman comics. And... On my reading project, one of the things that one of the things I ended up doing was rereading Hush, the Batman storyline called Hush, which for those of you who have kind of I guess shitty memories, that ran from Batman number 608 to Batman number 619. And that's a storyline I've always had an at best complicated relationship with and I'll get more into it I guess in in just a few minutes but keep in mind that I'm not necessarily coming at this from the standpoint of being a huge devotee of Hush or a huge devotee God knows of Jeff Loeb or even really all that big a de- uh, devotee of Jim Lee and that's an important thing to remember going into this thing just because You know, as a storyline, Hush has a certain reputation among, I would say, the majority of fans, where it's like there was almost a vote, and at some point this became somewhere in the top 5, top 10, top 15, top 20 Batman stories of all time. And as will become evident as we work our way through all of this, I kind of have, I'm a little hesitant, put it that way. I'm a little hesitant to call this one of the great stories of all time, but I'll come back to that later. For right now, what I've decided I'm going to do is, because of the fact that Hush is a 12-part storyline, and because of the fact that I usually have six episodes of my podcast with which I can do whatever I want, and then a seventh episode where I I team up with Chris Honeywell, and then an eighth episode where I... uh, historically have talked about Smallville. What I've decided to do is with these six episodes, basically talk about two issues of Hush in one go. The idea being I can probably work my way through the entire Hush storyline by covering two issues per episode, right? That will take me to the end. So that's what I was thinking. Now, in relation to that, Hush as the storyline kicks off in Batman number 608. Cover date is December 2002. On sale date is October 23rd, 2002. Cover price is 225. Eh, weren't those the days? Cover artists are Jim Lee and Scott Williams. Writer is Jeff Loeb. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inker is Scott Williams. Colorist is Alex Sinclair. Letterer is Richard Starkings. Editor is Bob Shrek. Story synopsis is as follows. 
Batman sneaks through an FBI perimeter at the Gotham City shipyard using acid to burn the lock off a door, despite acid being rather unpredictable as compared to, say, a lock picking kit. But acid works faster than picking a lock, which is what counts in this case. Successfully infiltrating the shipyard, Batman takes down the crew guarding the area. The four members are Nails Nathan, Tommy Harper, Carlos Valdez, and Spider Hancock. Batman takes them all out without breaking a sweat. After defeating the hired crew, he discovers Edward Lamont IV, the sole heir to the Lamont chemical fortune, who'd been kidnapped while walking home from school two days prior. While attempting to escape with the boy, Killer Croc arrives and attacks Batman. Batman calculated that he had two minutes before Croc returned to discover the, that the boy has been missing. Batman was off by 11 seconds. During the fight with Croc, Batman silently questions the reasons for all this as Croc's modus operandi has never included kidnapping. Because when you come right down to it, Killer Croc just isn't smart enough to pull off an operation as well-planned as all this. Further, Batman notes Croc's mutated body and wonders why it is that he needs ten, the $10 million ransom. After subduing Croc using hypersonics, FBI agents arrive on the scene to arrest Killer Croc. One of the officers tells Batman that this isn't exactly how they would have handled it. But, nevertheless, he gets results. In short order, though, Batman and the FBI discover that the ransom money intended for Croc is nowhere to be found. Batman assumes that someone must have taken it during the fight. The FBI agents uh, protest that no one could have gotten past their perimeter, but Batman's answer to that is, well, he'd gotten past it. Using heat sensors, Batman spots Catwoman fleeing the scene and begins chasing after her. Internally, he questions why it is that Catwoman would steal the ransom money. Ripping off someone else's take hasn't really ever been her style in the past. Not to mention that her actions in recent times of attempting to go on the right side of the law. In the middle of the pursuit, Batman's rope gets cut mid-swing, sending him plummeting downwards, breaking his shoulder in the process and landing in an alley occupied by homeless vagrants. Meanwhile, Catwoman makes her way to Gotham Tower Apartments, presenting the money to Poison Ivy. Ivy tells Catwoman to hand it over, and Catwoman obeys. No man, or woman, can resist Poison Ivy. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, guys, you need to understand that as far as storylines are, uh, are, are concerned, Hush, is it got a shit ton of hype and promotion. And so, as a result of all of that, I think it would be fair to say that expectations were, I don't know about sky high, but they're pretty fucking high for Hush. You've got Jeff Loeb, kind of a rock star writer, Jim Lee, who, especially back then, was kind of a rock star artist, teaming up on Batman, who's kind of a rock star character. I mean, that's a big deal. And so there was a lot of hype and a lot of hoopla revolving around Hush. Now, I didn't, I didn't read Hush when it was coming out. I did, you know, flip through the occasional single issues of it, and it seemed pretty cool, I guess. But this wasn't, 
This wasn't something I paid a whole lot of attention to at that time. You know what I mean? But there came a point, and it didn't really even take all that long. There came a point when the first half of the Hush storyline was released as a as a trade paperback. And then shortly thereafter, the, the, the back half of it was released as well. And at the time that the trade paperback, the first one came out, I was unemployed and basically I was going through a kind of, eh, I guess, unhappy season in life. I was about 22 and I just quit this, uh, this job I had at a, at a computer company here in town, for those of you interested. The computer company at that time was located in the Heights. I'm guessing two or three of you listening to this are going to find that interesting. But anyway, uh, that's where it was located. And it's like anything. I mean, you know, corporate politics, it was just a kind of a tricky situation. And so what I ultimately decided to do was, you know what, fuck this, I'm out of here. And being as I, I was 22 and had little or no real responsibilities, you know, I could do that. You know, I mean, I think a lot of you, maybe you can remember that time in life when you were footloose and fancy free and the idea of just quitting your job without having another job lined up. Well, this is not necessarily desirable on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's not exactly end of the world either because there's, you just have so little in the way of commitments or responsibilities or any of this other stuff, right? And so that's where I found myself. And in short order, because this is just the, the way of things when fucking you, you don't have a job, I didn't have any fucking money coming in, right? But what I could do, and I know this is maybe going to upset a few of you, but, you know, whatever. What I could do and what I did do was go to Barnes & Noble and just read stuff inside of the, inside of the store, Right? I probably would have bought this stuff if I could have afforded it, but fucking I couldn't afford it, so I didn't buy it, right? So that was how I first came up came about reading Hush altogether, right? And then as now, the way I kind of view it, uh, I kind of viewed it was Hush is kind of like it, it's like a Mick comic book in some ways because you, there's not a whole lot of meat to this when you really think about it it's kind of a souffle as far as comics are concerned but there's nothing of lasting consequence that's happening here you know now things of lasting consequence were ultimately done with hush but in and of itself this just didn't seem to be a very important comic i mean yeah you have the the marquee names involved you know it's it's jeff Loeb, it's jim lee it's batman and it's basically promises to kind of be Batman's greatest hits in some ways, but in other ways, it didn't seem like this comic was ultimately going to matter, you know, and I think there's a germ of truth to that, but I'm not sure if that's totally accurate, you know, and so what I did, like I say, was, you know, I read the story, you know, cover to cover over a period. I mean, I didn't do it all at once. This was like over, I think, two days. I'd go to Barnes and Noble and just read Hush and read other trades as well. But fucking this isn't about other comics. This is about Hush. So that's what we're talking about anyway. So, and one of the things that, one of the things that Hush kind of did for me was 
it cemented the idea that I've always had in my head that comics are not really feature film, you know, in terms of the types of stories that they tell. If you have to compare comics to anything else, especially anything cinematic, feature film is not really what comics are, you know? Comics are more comparable to TV shows in as much as they have to tell an ongoing narrative. And I've never really understood the temptation people have had to want to compare comics to film simply because of the fact that, you know, film tells different kinds of stories than comics do, than, than most comic books do, you know? Comics as a form, traditionally, they do more, uh, I guess, serialized type of narratives as opposed to film, which specializes more in like feature narratives. And so from the get-go, the types of stories that get told are just, are they're very different from each other, very different from each other. And I think that's one of the reasons that I've always kind of thought that it would be difficult, if not impossible, to do, say, a feature film about No Man's Land for Batman, or I guess for Superman to do Doomsday Funeral for a Friend and then Reign of the Superman. You know, to do those stories justice, you need something bigger, or at least something longer than feature film. You know, those are big stories, to be sure, but they're not really feature film friendly. Does that make sense? But you know what? If budget is no object, you could do a TV miniseries from stuff like that. Or you could do, those could be seasons of a TV show or just, or whatever, you know, whatever they are. You, there are a lot of different ways you could adapt those things for television. That's the point, right? And that, it was with that in mind that, number one, my, I guess my view of comics as most similar to TV. Now, guys, don't misunderstand me. To me, comics is comics. Comics are not TV. Comics are not film. But if you have to compare comics to anything cinematic to me, TV, hands down, no question, you know? But as I was reading Hush, one of the things that kind of came across to me is that this isn't just TV. This is, it, it's not even just a, like a season of a TV show even. This is specifically a final season. Or if you, if you wanted to, I guess, get narrower than that, this is a series finale, you know? I'll get more into it as I work my way through all of this stuff. But what you need to keep in mind, guys, is that I went through a phase. And arguably, I've not totally shaken it off. But I definitely went through a phase where, uh, starting in the late 90s, God knows, and then certainly thereafter, you know, with stuff uh, coming out in 2003, 2004, also in 2006, and definitely after that, 2009 especially, where... Goings on in Superman comics, just it. This I, I don't want this to sound pretentious or over dramatic or melodramatic or anything like that. But goings on with Superman comics hurt me, hurt me, you know. And I kind of reached a point where I thought, you know what, maybe it's better in my head canon because everybody's got a head canon, right? Maybe it's better in my head canon that Superman really did die 
at Doomsday's hands, and he didn't actually come back from the dead. He's He fought Doomsday, he died, he was mourned, he was buried. That's the end of it, you know? Because the stories that were coming out with uh, re- regarding Superman, I would say basically right around the time that Jeff Loeb left the Superman titles, it just got worse and worse and worse. And it, 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 it kind of reached a point where, you know, I don't recognize this character. I don't recognize this world. I don't recognize this continuity. I don't want any fucking thing to do with it. You know, uh, get me away from this. And that was kind of my reference point with Superman. And looking at goings on with Batman, you know, the things that happened after Hush. Yeah, you know, the kind of season finale vibe that Hush has to begin with. You know what? I thought maybe this is actually the series finale for Batman. This is where Batman's story ends. You know, my Batman. You know, this is arguably the last vestiges of the the 1990s like ultra dark batman that i just cherish this hush is arguably the last vestiges of that being put out to pasture you know and what i what i've really come to, to kind of view this at uh view hush as is kind of a demarcation point at least as far as my headcanon is concerned where, you know, the stuff that was published after Hush, maybe that's a little interesting. It's this, it's that, it's whatever. But Batman's story begins, for my money, in, like in my headcanon, it begins with Batman Year One, and then it wraps up with Hush. And you know what? That's not a bad run, you know, for me, with my headcanon of Batman, you know? The canonical Batman. This isn't just, these are the only Batman stories I enjoy, because... Guys, you've heard me talk about Batman stories from the 30s, some from the 40s, I think a couple from the 50s, one or two from the 60s, several from the 70s, a few from the 80s, and shitloads from the 90s. So hopefully I don't have to prove my Batman uh, bona fides to anybody, but it, it kind of has to be said that, you know, in terms of what I th- kind of see as the canonical Batman, you know, a kind of half-ass linear story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, the end point, without question, is Hush. You know, and so the realization of all that, and this is the point in this big fucking ramble fest I'm taking you through here, the realization of all that kind of made me value Hush in a way that I don't think I would have otherwise. You know, because if you, like I say, if you view Hush... Uh, it just ignore everything that came after it, right? And just take Hush at face value, which, by the way, is not a bad way to take anything that Jeff Loeb writes, because I don't think it's really meant to be analyzed or have some kind of deeper importance to it, you know? If you just take Hush at face value, it actually does kind of work rather nicely as sort of like the series finale of Batman, the canonical end of the canonical Batman, you know? Now, no, this is not the canonical end of Batman that I might want, but it is nevertheless a canonical end, and it's probably the most convenient of everything that I have to choose from, so fuck it, I choose to go with this, right? So, all of this is a long way of saying that Hush started off as a story that I thought was going to be at best 
kind of a, a souffle of a comic book. And I don't think that's an entirely incorrect uh, view to have of Hush. And then it sort of became something bigger than that to now where, again, I'm not going to tell you that this is one of my favorite Batman stories of all time. I think it's okay. But I do think it's got importance to it. It's got value to it that escaped me for the first several years after I read it. And I don't know, maybe I can bring a few of you over to my way of thinking on this. So anyway, to finally get into the comic book itself, though, uh, basically, I can't, it, it's hard to talk about the cover simply because of the fact there are so many covers to um, uh, Batman number 608 that to say that there's a cover, well, which cover are you talking about? Because there are so many different variations. There are actual variant covers. There are reprints. There are just tons of things to choose from. So the cover that I'm looking at, for anybody interested, the cover that I'm looking at is the standard issue uh, release of the cover. It's basically got Batman swinging around through Gotham City. You know, you got these big, tall, gothic buildings behind him. He's kind of ninja-kicking forward with one of his uh, feet with the treads on the bottom of the boot uh, pointed just above the camera, so to speak, like in quotation marks, the camera, right? And it's just a kind of a cool-looking cover. This is by no means the greatest Batman cover there's ever been, but I do kind of think of it as being a um, kind of an interesting little mission statement, nevertheless, that it's got a new logo on the cover, Batman has actual treads on his boots, which, guys, I don't give a flying shit what Jim Lee says to the contrary. He's not the first guy to give Batman treads on his boots. Now, he he may get a lot of credit for that, but I've seen other artists do that. I swear to think Scott McDaniel uh, did this before, before Jim Lee did, so that's how I choose to view it. Now, you guys have heard me kind of bash on... Jeff Loeb at great length. And so the people who are perhaps fans of Jeff Loeb might be wondering why it is that I'm subjecting myself to the masochism of reading a Jeff Loeb comic book here. And my answer to that is the way I've chosen to view this comic book, like I say, is strictly at face value. Make sense? Instead of considering everything that came after, I've decided to just evaluate this story on its own merits and enjoy or not enjoy it based on that. And so that's the approach that I've decided to take. So there are certain controversial things that spun out of Hush, which I guess I may touch on, but ultimately I don't regard those as canonical simply because my canonical Batman ends with Hush, and I believe that I'm at perfect liberty to reject that stuff if I so choose, and God knows I so choose, so I choose not to focus on that, uh, on those things. So because of that, it's actually a lot less frustrating now. So what I'm saying is, if you expect to listen to me bash the shit out of this issue, you might be a little bit disappointed. So there's that. Now, as to the art, you know, Jim Lee gets a lot of shit from people. And, you know, guys... If what you want me to hear, or rather, if what you want me to say is that there's some kind of a rational, logical defense for all of that, 
and I'm this big Jim Lee apologist, guys, I'm not your man. Not for that, you know? But I do kind of have some regard for Jim Lee, kind of in the same way that I, that I don't know why this surprises people, but I do have some regard for Michael Bay as a filmmaker, because to me, Michael Bay, you know what you're getting with a Michael Bay movie. You know, there's going to be a lot of fights. There's going to be a lot of gunplay. There's going to be a lot of action. There's probably going to be some car chases. There'll be explosions. You know, all this other stuff is going to be going on, right? Maybe you can't say all of those things about all of his movies, but in general, <clears throat> those seem to be kind of his stylistic trademarks. Those are the things that he really gravitates to, that kind of uh, big-budget, popcorn-y type of summer action movie spectacle, you know? That's a Michael Bay film. And to me, Jim Lee is the Michael Bay of, of comics. You know, he tells these big, overblown stories, and everything's really cool to look at, but he's not necessarily Dave Gibbons on Watchmen in terms of telling a kind of layered, textured, nuanced type of story. That's just not Jim Lee, guys. You know, he's the guy that's going to have, um, in a 22-page comic, maybe eight pages are dedicated to a this huge car chase involving the Batmobile and it's doing all this wacky fucking bullshit. You know, it's got rockets coming out the back of it and it's flying around and it's doing all this crazy shit, you know? And to me, that's when Jim Lee is really in his element. He does that well. I dare say he does that as good as, if not better than anybody. And I guess in that same vocabulary, when Michael Bay does that kind of stuff in his films, he does that stuff better than anybody. And so, like I say, I think you can draw a lot of straight lines stylistically between Jim Lee as the penciler on these issues and Michael Bay as a filmmaker. And I think you've got a leg to stand on, you know? This is aided and abetted by the fact that Jeff Loeb kind of specializes in comics that are overblown, overwrought, they're full of fighting and people running around and doing crazy bullshit. And it plays to a lot of Jim Lee's strengths as an illustrator. And when you think about it, the penciler of a comic book is kind of the director of it. You know, he determines the look and feel of stuff in most cases. Uh, it's up to him to, depending on, on how the writing is done, if the, it's written Marvel method or basically anything other than full script, then he's got a significant amount of input in terms of the pacing of the story and how the action unfolds, and certainly in terms of the way that the panels are arranged on the page. And really what the writer is there to do is tell a story in a way that, uh, I guess in a way that plays to the penciler's strengths. Because like I say, it's the writer's story, but the artist is the one telling it. And so... Jim Lee is famous for saying that he just doesn't really like drawing animals. That's kind of his Achilles heel. And so if you're Jeff Loeb writing Hush, you know from the outset that you're probably going to want to avoid anything involving animals, you know, horses and dogs and rabbits and all this other fucking bullshit running around. You know, that's the kind of stuff that you're going to want to steer clear of, you know, because Jim Lee is the director of all of this. You know, and the reality of the situation is that you don't give a guy like Michael Bay heavy drama to deal with, you know, like interpersonal drama 
or romantic comedies or stuff like that. You know, that doesn't really play to Michael Bay's strengths as a filmmaker. I mean, he can direct a hell of a Transformers movie, at least in my opinion. He's not necessarily the guy you go to if what you want is Steel Magnolias. You know, he's not the guy for that. Or Office Space or The Devil Wears Prada or American Pie or or fucking whatever, you know. You got to know the guy's strengths is what I'm saying. And so that's more or less, you know, who Jim Lee is, in my opinion. You know, he's the big action movie director of comics. And so even if, you know, the story doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of dramatic heft to it or it doesn't have a whole lot of lasting importance to it, he's the guy that you'd want to go to for a story like that. You know, so if you're, I guess to kind of put things in more Batman terms... Jim Lee is the guy that you want to draw Hush. Darwin Cook is the guy that you want to draw Ego. You guys remember Ego by Darwin Cook? That is a great fucking comic. But anyway, Jim Lee would not do well with a book like Ego, you know? But he can kick the shit out of a book like Hush. And so, again, if what you're expecting to hear from me is me criticizing and bashing on Jim Lee because of this, that, or the other. I'm really not going to do it simply because of the fact that so much of this plays to Jim Lee's strengths as a penciler, you know? So, anyway. To finally move away from the cover, though, getting into page one, and then really going into pages two, three, and then just kind of, you know, working our way forward from there, what we see is Batman infiltrating the shipyard. And one of the... I guess the the marketing mandates that everybody kind of went into this thing expecting is that we're going to see things in, in, in this comic that we've never seen in Batman comics before. And we get that pretty much on page one and more so on page two, where it's like Batman has a targeting system inside of his cowl and it basically identifies uh, people. And right here on actually on on page one, we see a shot of Nails uh, Nathan. He's standing around in a hallway holding a gun, and it gives off his vital statistics, you know, his height, his weight. Also identifies the fact that he's holding a gun and, you know, distances and uh, angles and all of these sorts of things. And this is something that I think a lot of people maybe expected from Iron Man or something like that, but now we're seeing it in Batman. So right from the start, this is something new, at least to Batman right? And this whole thing is being done kind of point of, sort of like POV, like point of view type of camera angles. So we're seeing basically what Batman is seeing, starting at the bottom of page one and then going through pages two and three, where Batman basically, he doesn't allow uh, allow himself to get drawn into uh, fisticuffs with, with these guys. He basically identifies their weaknesses and then wipes him out. So in the case of Nails Nathan, he basically takes him out with this, uh, w- with these uh, uh, bat dart looking things that uh, get embedded in his arm. And first they paralyze his, his hand, then his arm. And then Batman says, then they go to work on his head. And he takes out uh, Tommy Harper, who's got a metal plate in his skull. So Batman takes him out uh, with basically magnetism which uh, uh, trips Tommy Harper up pretty pretty badly because that triggers vertigo. So, you know, that's two down. 
Um, Carlos Valdez is the next guy that's up. He's a mercenary uh, who prefers to fight in close, so Batman takes him out from afar. Another guy, Spider Hancock, uh, he'd broken uh, two ribs a few nights earlier, so Batman smacks, uh, smacks him in the ribs. He, like I say, he doesn't, he doesn't trade punches with these guys. He basically finds a way to take them out quickly. And the reason this works for me is because, yeah, Batman's a brawler. He's an ass kicker. People, I think most people would want to think twice before trading punches with Batman. But the thing about Batman is that he doesn't trade punches with somebody unless he has to. And he also doesn't trade punches with somebody until he knows how to take him down. He doesn't fight unless he knows how to win. You know, and I don't mean this from the standpoint of that kind of Grant Morrisonian sort of bat god. I mean, we're definitely getting into that era. I don't know as we're quite there yet, but we're definitely getting into that era where, where Batman is... He basically goes into situations with plans, and he knows who his targets are. He knows what he has to do in order to win, and so he makes the most efficient use of his time, his resources, his body, in order to, minim uh, to minimize risk and thus minimize damage to himself. Now, excuse me while I get a sip off of my Mountain Dew here. Got an entire liter of Mountain Dew. And something tells me I may actually need it as I work my way through uh, these comics because I'm looking at the uh, timer here. We're closing in on 40 minutes, and I'm still only on pages 2 and 3. So, hmm. Anyway, since I'm kind of on a break here, I'm going to take a few drags off my e-cig. So, please stand by. For those interested... I basically have in my e-cig, I've got this kind of uh, strange brew cocktail. Um, there's this watermelon flavored juice that I'm using. This has got uh, three milligrams of nicotine in it. And this is called Juice Roll-Up. It's this kind of watermelon flavored thing. At least I can only describe it as a thing. And then a tiny little bit of this ultra-powerful super duper uh it doesn't actually give me the exact concentration it says high nicotine 2.4 percent but it doesn't actually give me anything in terms of milligrams so i can't quite do like an a to b comparison here between the three milligrams of the juice roll-up and the 2.4 percent uh high nicotine strawberry flavor that i've got going here but this is actually a pretty successful little uh combination you know these actually do kind of work well together a lot better i should say than you might first think. And that is your e-cig lesson for the day. Now, to get back into the comic, because ultimately that's really what I'm here to talk about, moving forward, uh, Batman basically springs uh, the kid uh, from... I don't even know what the fuck this thing's even supposed to be. It's it, it looks like it's... It's not a vault, exactly. I don't know what you call it, but it's got, it's got a port window in it, and that kind of round doorknob. It's it's a big, huge metal door with a rounded doorknob on it, kind of like a steering wheel. And so, you know, you open the knob by, or you open the door by rotating the doorknob, like spinning it. And Batman doesn't actually do that. He blows the damn thing off its hinges, but that's, I'm trying to describe this in a way that's kind of podcast friendly, but anywho. So anyway, that's 
the name of the game here, obviously, as Batman makes his way through all of this, is speed, and that's what he's trying to do. And you get you get the impression as you work through, the, as all of this is going on, that it, just the internal monologue makes it clear that you know Batman is in a is in a hell of a rush, and so he used acid on the lock that huge padlock outside of the place. He used acid on that lock rather than picking the lock. He uh, took down uh, the henchman uh, quickly rather than duking it out with him. He blows this huge fucking metal door off its hinges rather than uh, trying to unlock it. And so clearly the name of the game here is speed and getting this kid out of here as quickly as possible, specifically so that Batman can avoid a fight with uh, Killer Croc. That's <clears throat> that's really the name of the game. And it again speaks to to the fact that, yeah, you know, Batman's a brawler. He's an ass kicker. He can take care of himself. He can win fights. But his objective, especially with an opponent like Croc, is it's not necessarily to win the fight. It's to not fight. You know, that's the more efficient and probably safer way to go. And I kind of like that, you know, Batman's being, he's not being passive just for the sake of being passive. He's being, he, he's trying to be cautious so that he doesn't get this kid killed and doesn't get himself killed in the process, you know? And so this is basically, it, it's the smart way to do things. You know, it's the efficient way uh, uh, to go with all of this. And I mean, I understand like from, I guess, a narrative standpoint, the, the value and purpose of the bat God and why exactly that characterization ever existed in the first place. At least I think I do, but that Batman is just for whatever reason, less interesting for me to read than the Batman. That's a little bit more fallible. And what we're getting here in hush is, is a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a, of a, of a compromise between those two extremes, the one that's fallible versus the one that's infallible. This is a Batman that plans ahead, that goes into things with a plan and a method to win, but the entire dramatic thrust of Hush as a story requires that Batman constantly be caught off guard, that he has no contingency plan for the stuff that's happening to him. He's adapting as well as he can. He's formulating plan, uh, plans based on what's happening to him in the moment, but he's typically at least one step behind whoever the bad guy is in all of this. And we'll come to that when we come to that. But Batman is uh, typically at least one step behind the action for most of this story. And I kind of like that, uh, you know, that approach to where, yeah, Batman, he's got plans. He's got, I guess, the talent and the vision to, to avoid certain levels of risk but he doesn't necessarily have every single possibility imaginable and unimaginable covered with 16 zillion different backup plans and all of these, all this other fucking bullshit. I mean, stuff like that, it just gets tedious after a while, you know? And so anyway, that's basically what we're seeing indeed in this issue, microscopically, but macroscopically throughout this whole story. And I must say for whatever quibbles and reluctances I have with Hush as a story, I do rather admire that approach. So good on Jeff Loeb for, for taking that approach. Anyway, so the fight's on with Killer Croc. And, you know, just through it all, you know, one of the things that's happening here, if you pay attention, Batman doesn't really trade punches with Killer Croc all that much. He gets kicked around by Killer Croc. 
and he uh, gives him the Irish headbutt at one point, and then he gives him this flying Chuck Norris ninja kick. And then after that, you know, Batman uses a gadget instead of his fists. He uses a gadget to uh, take Croc down or at least disrupt his thinking uh, with hypersonics and then um, slams them up against this huge giant fucking metal pipe, which is pretty much what puts Croc down for the count, you know? And then just to kind of, I guess, provide a dividend, what Batman does is he actually chains Croc up. He First, he, sus- he suspends him off of this huge giant metal pipe, and he's also wrapped in chains. The idea being that this is probably the best restraint that Batman can come up with in the field. And so it works, at least for the time being. And then, of course, the FBI swoops in and then they try to take over. Now, as all of this stuff's been going on, what we see is this little grappling hook uh, sneak on down, grab the suitcase full of money that Killer Croc dropped, and then whisk the briefcase out of, out of the panel. And so that kind of becomes the focus of things uh, in short order. But actually, before I get into that, one of the things that I kind of like about this is that this is a DC universe that is very well accustomed to the fact that superheroes are running around and they are a day-to-day reality in the DC universe. And so the FBI agents don't really balk too much at the fact that an unlicensed, unsanctioned vigilante, basically, is the one that took down Killer Croc, recovered the the uh, kidnapped kid, and all of that. I mean, you got to figure that if something like this happened in the real world, yeah, Croc is going to go... He, I mean, he's, he's getting taken into custody. There's no question about that. But so is Batman, you know? But that doesn't happen in... in, in in this comic because this is the DC universe where superheroes are just part of the, the day-to-day reality, you know, whereas if this was a Marvel comic, unless the superhero in question had some kind of affiliation with shield or the Avengers or something like that, odds are the, there would, there would at least be somebody in the story paying lip service to the idea of taking this superhero into custody too. But that doesn't happen here because superheroes, they are a valid, if illegitimate, aspect of law enforcement. And so that's the way that the FBI handles the situation. And that's something that I kind of like about the DC universe in, I guess, this vintage of, of their history where... You know, whatever was or wasn't going on with Superman that I do or don't approve of, the universe itself, the universe at large, there was this internal logic to it that gave it a remarkable degree of consistency. Am I making sense here? You guys know what I mean? You know, Batman was part of a... He lives in a world that welcomes and accepts the fact that superheroes are part of day-to-day reality. You understand? Batman is not going to get taken into custody by the FBI in the DC universe, even though in the real world, guys, don't kid yourself, he would get hauled away in cuffs too, on charges to be determined, you know? That's probably what would happen, you know? 
but it doesn't happen here. And I, and again, I'm not trying to be a pain in the neck about it. I just want to emphasize the fact that this is one of the things that I like about the DCU, especially over and against the way that the Marvel Universe is structured, you know? So anyway, Batman flips on his heat sensors and he sees Catwoman swinging away with uh, the ransom money. So he grapple hooks after her and pretty much the chase is on. And it's up for grabs what might have happened uh, from here because of the fact that Batman's little zip line ends up getting cut. And so he he falls from... Guys, this has got to be a couple dozen uh, stories in the air. Falls and crash lands in Crime Alley. Now, what I kind of like about this is the fact that Batman doesn't have a contingency plan. You know, what happens if I'm swinging around through Gotham City? And my zip line suddenly breaks or it gets cut or something like that. He doesn't have a contingency plan for this, you know? So he tries to improvise as best he can. He reaches out and tries to break his fall by grabbing onto a gargoyle. All he ends up doing, though, is breaking his shoulder. And he slows his fall, but he doesn't exactly stop it. Crash lands in Crime Alley. And... and Basically, I, at this point, it'd be safe to say Bruce is pretty fucked up. So what's going to happen from here? And that's certainly a question we can come back to for right. Uh, uh, we can come back to momentarily. But for right now, you know, this is on page 20. There's this kind of glory shot of Catwoman standing on Poison Ivy's terrace where, number one, we get this isn't the first good look we've gotten at Catwoman in this issue but this is nevertheless a really good look and i don't know if this is a if this was a new costume that jim lee designed specifically for hush or if catwoman had been running around in this costume for quite a while now but either way i fucking dig this costume you know first of all it just looks honestly it looks relatively functional you know first off starting at the bottom of page 20 Catwoman is wearing these boots and thank God she's not wearing high heels. It looks like she's got actual fucking boots, you know, with nice thick treads on them, you know, and thick soles. And you could believe that she could scramble across rooftops and other tricky uh, terrains using these types of boots. You know, that's, it's very functional. It's very believable. You know, I can totally buy that. And then kind of working upwards, you know, this kind of skin-tight bodysuit that she's wearing. <clears throat> it basically looks like this is maybe PVC or it could be pleather or it could be leather. I mean, I don't really know what this bodysuit is supposed to be made out of. It's something shiny and reflective, but it's not really, it's not really, what I'm saying is it looks functional. You know, again, you could picture Catwoman running around rooftops with some, you know, wearing something like this, you know, and it's got a, it's got practical value to it. Now, because of the fact that it's shiny, I don't know how well it would really blend in to shadows and whatnot, but whatever, this isn't supposed to be real world. So there you go. But maybe the best part of all of this, the sort of creme de la creme here is the giant cat goggles that she's wearing. And when you think about it, I mean, how fucking genius is this? I mean, it looks like She's basically got sort of reflective mirrored uh, lenses, uh, you know, as the lenses on her goggles. 
So it's kind of a mask, but it doesn't limit her field of vision. Because, you know, guys, when you when you wear a mask of pretty much any kind, unless you've got some, unless it's a really funky looking mask, any mask you wear is going to somewhat limit your field of vision, pretty much. And what we have here is Catwoman basically trying to think of, I guess, a workaround for this. She's wearing goggles, which kind of serve as a mask on the one hand. But on the other hand, there is the, the practical value of wearing goggles where, you know, she does do a lot of swinging around through the air and stuff. She needs goggles to protect her eyes. And so this kind of works on many levels, especially given that these look, at least to me, like mirrored, like one-way mirror goggles. Or is it, wait, which... Is it two-way mirror or one-way mirror? I don't know. It's whatever that mirror is where somebody's standing on one side of the mirror, they see a mirror reflection. Somebody's standing on the other side of the mirror. What they see is just conventional glass. And whatever type of mirror that is, I thought that was a one-way mirror, but maybe it's not. Um, fuck it. I'm calling that a one-way mirror. And if I'm wrong, well, you guys let me know. Trinismagnus at gmail.com. But the the thing here is... It kind of works also on that level, just that extra little bit of disguise and misdirection. I fucking love this Catwoman outfit. And it's like anything. I mean, of all comic book characters, there's a strong argument that Catwoman has been through the most in terms of just different costumes and whatnot. But this one is my favorite, simply because of the fact that it, let's face it, Catwoman is supposed to be a sexy character, and this definitely is a sexy looking costume. But it's also got a lot of practical sort of, I guess, day-to-day -day utility to it. You know what I mean? Where you could picture somebody actually using this to commit crimes and do all the other kind of crazy extreme stuff that Catwoman is supposed to do. I buy it. So this is just a cool-looking costume. It's definitely my favorite Catwoman costume. And I guess if you, if you want this to somewhat resemble the Julie Newmar costume from the 1960s Batman TV show, you can, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, you can go a different direction with it if you want. So all in all, I like it. This is ridiculously well done Catwoman costume. So like I say, I don't know if Jim Lee created it, but man, he makes it look like a million bucks. Uh, uh, from there, then that's all on page 20. Now from there, getting to uh, page 21 and then into page 22, we get a kind of creepy moment in all of this uh, where, actually starting on page 20, a disembodied voice says, any problems? And Catwoman answers, Batman. Disembodied voice says, and? Catwoman replies, he couldn't keep up. Disembodied voice says, you sound disappointed. Catwoman replies, would that matter? Disembodied voice says, not really, as long as you have the money. And we get a close-up of Poison Ivy's lips, and we realize that's the one who's talking to Catwoman here. And she says, bring me the money. That's it. You know you can't resist me. No man or woman can. And we're going to get a little bit more into it here, but that's a little bit of a suggestive comment there. And just kind of flipping ahead, you know, we don't get... We don't really get too much of Poison Ivy for the next, for a while at least. I'm going to go ahead and tackle the subject here. It's suggested here and in issues yet to come 
that I'm just going to say it. Poison Ivy raped Catwoman is certainly one way that you can interpret some of the comments and things that people make in these issues. And what I've heard, I haven't really been able to confirm this, but what I've heard is that this issue was actually supposed to end with Poison Ivy kissing Catwoman. And Jim Lee just supposedly now, Jim Lee refused to uh, to draw that. And the reason for that is because it kind of makes literal what could be interpretive, right? You can interpret Poison Ivy as a rapist, but that's not the only way to, to view it. It could be that she chose Catwoman just as her little servant here just because, you know? But when you look back on other things that Poison Ivy does, not even just in this story, but even going back to The Long Halloween where it's implied that Poison Ivy raped Bruce Wayne, and then, like I say, comments that she makes about, that Poison Ivy and then other characters make about uh, Catwoman here, and the Catwoman makes about Poison Ivy. And you could even, and to be honest, I mean, you are kind of bending spoons here a little bit, but you could even interpret that Poison Ivy raped Superman. And one of the clearer things that come out of all of this is that Poison Ivy is a rapist, you know? Now, like I say, because of the fact that it's not really explicit, you know, there's no single panel that you can flip to and say, yeah, or rather no single panel you can flip to where it says, hey, Poison Ivy is a rapist. You know, you can have, I guess, other layers of interpretation to it, you know? But I think a very defensible interpretation is that Poison Ivy is a fucking rapist, you know? And... I would hope I don't have to say that I, that I oppose rape. I mean, I, I would hope that fucking goes without saying. Having said that, though, I do think this is good characterization for somebody in, in Batman's rogues gallery because of the fact that, you know, Alan Moore, he could not have been the first one to point this out, but he is famous for pointing out that, you know, there is a, there's not just a sexualized element to superheroes, there is an inherently sexual element to superheroes. And this is not to speak of the fact that, you know, one way of interpreting the the outfits and stuff that they wear is, well, fetish, you know? And I mean, like, fetish as a subculture, you know, like as a sexual subculture. And so, guys, if you know anything about, you know, not... I don't want to convict everybody who's involved in fetish here, but if you know anything about just kind of sexual subcultures at large, suffice it to say, you get all types there, right? And some of them are going to be real scumbags. There's just no way around it. And so what I'm saying is somebody in Batman's rogues gallery, considering the way that everybody dresses and the way that everybody behaves, you're going to get somebody who's a serious fucking deviant sooner or later, right? Sooner or later, you're going to come across somebody who, I'm just going to say it, somebody who's a rapist, you know? Now, the reason it kind of works for me that it's Poison Ivy is because she's somebody who's already kind of a misanthrope to begin with anyway. At her core, I think you could fairly well categorize Poison Ivy as an eco-terrorist, you know? But 
I think her eco-terrorism stems from the fact that she just hates people. She's kind of a misanthrope, you know? And so to me, it's kind of a hop, skip, and a jump away from all of that to say that this is somebody who regards people that she uses as fucking mulch in some cases, that she regards people as sex objects, you know? And somebody who has that view of people to begin with, you know what? It's not a stretch at all to think that they could they could be capable of rape. Understand, guys, just in case it's not fucking clear, obviously I oppose rape, all right? People who rape other people need to go to fucking prison, okay? It's as simple as that, all right? But what I'm saying is that it's still good characterization. It's not good that she's a rapist. It's good characterization that she's written kind of like a rapist, you know? So I, I hope the distinction here is clear. If it's not, listen to it again. It's not my fault if you misunderstand this, because I feel like I've kind of beat this thing to death here. Like I say, this is, honestly, considering the fact that we're talking about Jeff Loeb, this is kind of insightful uh, characterization, guys. I got to say, you know, I would never have given Jeff Loeb credit for this, but rereading Hush, you know, I couldn't escape the kind of how this escaped me in the first place. I have no idea. But rereading this now, I just couldn't get away from this uh, this notion of Poison Ivy as rapist. And so I thought, I have got to be the only one who, who's been wondering about this. But I'll go ahead and Google it anyway. And sure enough, a lot of people out there have interpreted Poison Ivy's actions in The Long Halloween and God knows here in Hush, these are the actions of somebody who's a rapist, period, end of story. So if you think I'm wrong on this, you need to understand if I'm wrong, I'm not the only one who's wrong. Now, as far as I know, nobody's ever asked Jeff Loeb about this in an interview, or if they have, I've just never found that interview, I guess. But if you guys have a different angle on this and you want to share it with me, please do. Because, you know, I, I, I welcome anything, any kind of input that you guys have on this. Trennismagnus at gmail.com. Trennismagnus at gmail.com. T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Let me know what you think about that. And that, I think, is basically it for Batman number 608 because I'm... I'm probably over an hour at this point. So anyway, to finally get into things here, this is uh, Batman number 609. Cover date is January 2003. On sale date is November the 27th, 2002. Cover price is 225. Cover artists are Jim Lee and Scott Williams. Writer is Jeff Loeb. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inker is Scott Williams. Colorist is Alex Sinclair. Letterer is Richard Starkings. Editors are Bob Shrek and Morgan Dottonville. And the story summary is as follows. The thugs that witness Batman's fall surround him and try to take off his mask. And when they're unable to do so, they try to kill him. Oracle asks for any member of the Gotham Vigilantes to reach Batman's location quickly since he started an emergency signal on his utility belt and he's not responding to her. Huntress screeches to a halt on the scene with her motorcycle in the middle of Park Row. Deploying her battle staff, she launches into the thugs surrounding Batman's body. 
While beating her opponents back, she manages, uh, or rather, she maintains radio communication with Oracle, who in turn uses a a remote control to bring the Batmobile to their location. Huntress loads Batman's unconscious body into the empty vehicle, whereupon it returns to the Batcave. The scene is witnessed by a mysterious man watching from the shadows, because this is kind of like the 90s, whose head is covered in bandages. Elsewhere, Poison Ivy takes the money, uh, the money-filled attache case that she received from Catwoman and gives it to a shadowy figure at an undisclosed location. Meanwhile, back at the Batcave, Alfred Pennyworth labors around the clock to save Bruce's life, but there's little even his impressive skills can accomplish at this point. Bruce is suffering from a severe skull fracture. Though barely conscious, Bruce manages to tap out the name Thomas Elliot in Morse code. Thomas Elliot is a brilliant neurosurgeon and a childhood friend of Bruce Wayne. Alfred takes Bruce to Gotham City Hospital and Dr. Elliot manages to save his life. During the operation, Bruce dreams of his childhood. He recalls playing games of strategy with young Tommy Elliot and remarking at Tommy's keen analytical mind. Alfred has uh, Nightwing wreck one of Bruce's sports cars and stages the story that Bruce injured himself while racing throughout the neighborhood of Bristol. The operation proves successful and Bruce is released from the hospital. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, first, all of this talking has given me kind of a dry throat, so just a second while I get another sip off of my Mountain Dew. All right. Now, as to the cover, this is a kind of a non-sequitur cover. It's basically Poison Ivy kind of rubbing up on Batman on one side. On the other side, you've got Catwoman, who's also rubbing up on Batman. Batman is in the center, and he's... Basically, it looks like being strangled by a uh, this this uh, vine of ivy. And overall, I mean, it's a good cover, don't get me wrong, but it's a little bit non-sequitur in as much as nothing like this really happens in the comic. So, what the fuck? And, I don't know. It's, like I say, it's it, it's a good image. It's just not really anything to do with what happens in this issue. So, I, I don't know. I don't really know really what more to say here but getting into the story itself uh basically this whole thing kind of it kicks off with these homeless bums basically trying to uh, unmask batman and basically what comes out here is that batman's costume has some limited kind of defense to it where it will repel attackers now it's not really clear in the story just how sophisticated this, or for that matter, how existent uh, his suit's AI is, or for that matter, if it even has AI. But it does, it does kind of answer the question, at least somewhat, why is it that if Batman's incapacitated, crooks don't just take off his mask? Well, this could be why, you know? I mean, if he's got a defense system set up inside of his suit that will somewhat protect or at least discourage people from trying to unmask them, then that's half the battle right there, you know? It's not a stretch to think that when one guy gets uh, gets gassed in the face and then another guy gets friggin' electrocuted, that, you know what? Maybe we don't need to mess around with Batman. And it kind of 
because of the fact that, let's face it, criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot, it kind of furthers Batman's myth that people incline to see Batman as a vaguely uh, supernatural force already now have another reason to do so, you know, because even though he's down and out, he's still protected, you know, he's still able to defend himself on some level or another. So anyway, that's that. Now, after that, the Huntress screeches onto the scene and basically what, what ensues is, uh, the Huntress, uh, kicking ass on, on all of these bums and, yeah, you kind of have to figure that a lot of these guys may not even be bums. They may actually just be lowlives who perhaps have their own crimes that they're they're going with right now. So who's to say? But it does this does kind of emphasize how good the huntress is that she's not just another pretty face. She's not just another one of Batman's helpers. She's an ass kicker in her own right, you know? And the minute you don't respect that, She's going to beat your ass, you know, and that comes across here that she's not really using brute force on uh, on these guys so much, which is welcome, in my opinion. Uh, she uses kind of she uses uh, sucker punches. She uses uh, martial arts. She uses uh, tactics. She uses basically her surroundings to her advantage. She doesn't necessarily rely on raw physical strength when she's fighting men. She uses um, other advantages in order to win the fight. And that is, I just, I, I kind of like the fact that apparently Jim Lee had his thinking cap on whenever he was doing all of this. Another neat thing is that the first, uh, the first thing the Huntress does when she rides up on her motorcycle is she hops off her motorcycle and then just gives, this, gives one guy a ninja kick right to the noggin. And what you can see is the underside of her boot. And again, she's not wearing high heels. She's wearing functional boots, you know. And you could picture her using these boots to run around rooftops. And basically everything that I said about Catwoman, it can apply to the Huntress as well. You know, that it may be kind of a trope of comics that every woman has to wear high heels for God knows what reason. And that gets suspended here. The Huntress is using functional equipment to do a very dangerous job. You know, trying to do all of this using high heels or other stupid bullshit, that would be suicide, guys. And she doesn't even try to do it. And so instead, you know, she uses more functional equipment to get the job done. And that works for me. This is, and, and of course, this is not to speak of the fact that I'm, I'm kind of a Huntress fanboy from way back anyway. I just dig her as a character. I always have. I like her, I like her shtick. I like her style. I mean, I like Helena Wayne of Earth 2 a lot. I'm a big fan of that version of the character. But I also kind of like uh, Helena Bertinelli too. I mean, I think that that, you know, the post-crisis Huntress, I think that's got a lot to recommend it. You know, she's vaguely Batman-like, but there are some very key differences between the Huntress and Batman, and it stands to reason, absolutely stands to reason, that she and Batman wouldn't necessarily see eye to eye, at least on certain things. You know, that works for me. So, 
all in all, I dig that. Anyway, so the Huntress basically takes all of these guys down, and I think a pretty believable manner. And so after that, the Batmobile arrives on the scene. Uh, she loads them up inside, and then the Batmobile is off, and then the Huntress is off. But right from the outset, you know, I just, first off, I just fucking dig the fact that, you know, the Huntress had her little moment in the story, and you get to see just what a just fucking badass she is. And the other thing, though, is that, again, this is a degree of plotting that I wouldn't necessarily give Jeff Loeb credit for, at least to start with. There's a reason why it was specifically the Huntress that arrived on the scene rather than Robin or Nightwing or anybody else. It needed to be the Huntress, and not just because she's badass extraordinaire. There's something else going on here. But we'll get to that when we get to that. Next, there's this little moment where Poison Ivy uh, gives, uh, she hands off uh, the money to the shadowy, mysterious stranger, which, if you're familiar with Hush as a storyline, you probably already know who this is, but I'm not going to spoil ahead here. Not really. Although, just keep in mind, we're talking about a storyline called Hush. So, hmm. Anyway, but that's going to get revisited in issues to come. But for right now, moving right along, uh, there's this moment where Alfred is doing all in his power to unfuck Bruce. I mean, this guy, he's got a fractured skull, and Alfred's good. Don't get me wrong. He's good. And at this point, he's probably, he's probably patched Bruce up so many times by now that he could probably get a job, you know, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that he's not officially licensed or pedigreed or anything like that as a surgeon, he could probably get a job otherwise as a surgeon simply because of the amount of, of real time experience that he's had. I mean, he may have started off as, as a medic or what have you, but at this point in, in, Batman's career, Alfred is, I think, a full-scale surgeon. That having been said, though, there are compelling reasons why Alfred would never in a million fucking years want to do brain surgery or anything to do really with uh, too much head trauma. And the reason for that is, guys, look, it's one thing to do surgery on somebody's gut or on their arm or their leg or something to extract a bullet, but the kind of fucking surgery that Bruce needs is way beyond what Alfred can do, and he knows that. And this actually kind of leads to, honestly, one of the quibbles that I have with this story, which is Alfred, not Alfred, um, Oracle uh, suggests contacting Chandra Kinsolving, last seen in Night Quest, I think, because of the fact that she's got basically a superhuman healing touch you know where whatever she touches whoever she touches she can heal them you know and it comes out that <clears throat> she's not as batshit fucking cuckoo as she once was but bruce taps out uh thomas elliott in morse code and guys again i'm not going to spoil ahead here but there's a reason for that there's a reason uh bruce selected uh, Thomas Elliot, but guys, in my heart of hearts, what I kind of have to assume is that Alfred would say, you know, Bruce, that's lovely. I'm glad that you're, you're thinking about him, but, uh, fucking, he doesn't have superpowers and 
Chandra Kinsolving does. You know, what she's, what she's going to do is guaranteed to work. What Thomas Elliot can do, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, you know? I think Alfred would insist on, on Chandra Kinsolving. I mean, if I were in his position, that would be my move, you know? Because that's the guaranteed success. I mean, Chandra Kinsolving, that will definitely work. Thomas Elliot, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Who can say? But it's going to take time, you know? And I, I cannot envision Alfred going along with this. Now, the narrative needs him to. The narrative needs Thomas Elliot on the scene to patch Bruce up for reasons that will become apparent later on. But it needs to be said that I don't for one minute buy that Alfred would play along on this. I just, fuck, I don't. You know, anyway, so from there we get uh, news clips from various uh, programs on the Exposition News Network that lets us know basically what's going on and more importantly what the public thinks was going on with uh, Bruce Wayne's supposed car crash as opposed to Batman's uh, pavement dive. And in the hospital, Thomas, uh, Dr. Thomas Elliott wanders in and begins this, the surgery. From there, Bruce kind of has a hallucination or memory or dream or however you choose to interpret this. Of it, It's not really clear what game that he, as a child, he and uh, Tommy Elliot are playing with one another. But it's a game of strategy. That much is clear. And Bruce is basically playing on impulse. He's not playing with a strategy. And he doesn't, therefore, understand that... This isn't necessarily a game of moving pieces around on a board. There's a strategy here that, that's got to be employed or else you're guaranteed to lose. And that's Tommy's point as he lectures uh, Bruce about it. He says, Bruce, you're already dead. And uh, Bruce, the kid, says, well, uh, how can you tell? You haven't even moved yet. And uh, young Tommy says, it won't happen on the next move. It's six moves from now. You forgot your most important piece, Bruce. Your spy. You always do this, Bruce. You always attack without knowing your opponent's weaknesses. As long as you can't think like me, you'll never beat me. And then Tommy goes on to say, but I can always think like you. And he, then he wins the game. And basically what we're supposed to, I guess, gather from this is that this is the first time that Bruce, and the first time in young Bruce's life, where he's, he's ever needed to, I guess, think in terms of strategy, in terms of tactics. You know, you don't just muscle in there and, and, and try to bully your way through. What you need to do is think tactically, you know? And it's an important lesson for Bruce to learn. And I kind of like the fact that he didn't come out of the birth canal knowing that. He had to learn that as a child and then perfect that as an adult and then ultimately refine it as Batman. You know, that works for me. So after that, the operation ends. Thomas Elliot and uh, Dr. Thomas Elliot. Of course, they don't number these friggin' pages, most of them, so it's hard to be sure. But I'm gu I'm guessing this is page 21. Uh, Thomas Elliot says, "Well, I don't know if Mr. Wayne will ever play the violin again, but I think it's safe to say that." And then we see a headline saying, "Wayne out of danger," and it looks like this is a. A, a Daily Planet newspaper, and it looks like the caption beneath it says, uh, 
uh, picture by Jimmy Olsen. And the reason that's kind of easy to believe is if you look at the second panel on this page, it looks like on the uh, on the far right you you've got Lois Lane. At least it looks like Lois Lane. And then right behind her is undeniably Jimmy Olsen. So I kind of like the idea of Lois and Jimmy coming out to coming out to the hospital basically to cover goings on with with Bruce Wayne. Now, I personally find it a little bit hard to believe that Perry White would send Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen to Gotham City for what amounts to celebrity gossip, you know, or at least celebrity news, that kind of entertainment news kind of stuff, you know, but it gets Lois and Jimmy involved in the story. And so because of that, I'm willing to let that slide. But when you think about it, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you know, so just don't don't think too much about that. Then we get to the final page where we see the shadowy, mysterious figure cut Bruce's uh, picture out of the newspaper. And all the while, he's whispering to himself, we make war that we may live in peace. And then that's the end of the issue. And so just from the outset, you know, just with these two issues, what you understand is that this is a very plot-driven story. I mean, you know, character dynamics... Well, they are what they are, you know, but really this is a story that turns more on plot than it does character. And that's going to become more apparent, I think, as we work our way through this storyline. But, you know, even really right from the outset, you know, yeah, there's a fair amount of internal monologue working through uh, these, these two issues that I read, but basically all of this really comes down to what happens next, what happens next, what happens next. And so that I think is really the, the sort of real point of it. So anyway, that is pretty much it for the uh, two issues that I wanted to talk about this week. And as it happens, it's also probably my cue to say that uh, next week, what I'm going to be doing is talking about Batman number 610 and number 611, but that's next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G 
N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy.